I don't know what's real. I don't know what's not real. Limited Capacity is a collection of six darkly amusing stories about the mysterious ways we interact with the internet and with each other. There's something going on with him. It's like an act. I don't trust him. What? You're staring at me like I should say something, but I don't really know what to do here. That's the whole name of the game. Don't talk about how the town isn't real. Do you understand? Limited Capacity. Available now on CBC Listen or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. If Caldwell from 11 years ago would have seen Caldwell today, I probably would have been like, you're going to get picked on. You should go change clothes. Welcome to Chosen Family. I'm Trana Winter. And I'm Thomas LeBlanc. That was Caldwell, more famously known as Bob the Drag Queen. Bob, of course, was the winner of season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. The new season of Drag Race, season 12, has just started, so we are in a drag state of mind. I'm watching. Are you watching? I'm watching. More with Bob later on the show. Um, it's going to be spring soon, spring, summer. I guess. Wedding season. <laughs> I'm not a big fan of weddings in general, although I love okay. wedding television. <laughs> I love Say Yes to the Dress. I can watch 12 hours of Say Yes to the Dress and four weddings straight. So I'm invited to go to two weddings this year. People I adore. Okay. Like, I adore these yeah. people. Like, I want to make that <laughs> okay. clear. Um, and I'm happy they're getting married. I guess I am. You're not. I'm not. <laughs> I'm, I don't know. The, Whenever anyone announces an engagement, my gut reaction is always, no, why? Well, I can't help but go to statistics. It's like, <laughs> I feel like when I'm I'm bothered, I'm like, okay, what is the statistics that's bothering me? And I guess the divorce statistic is the one it's, that's... It's so high. So, be, be, But beyond the stats, I have wedding trauma. So my parents were never married. I'm an only child. They separated when I was seven. But then after that, they got married three times. So three times in my life, I have been to a wedding where one of my parents was getting married. How many times did your mom get married? She got married once. And your dad got married twice? Twice. Um, The first time I was 14, and I was really opposed to that. Mm. I did not like my stepmom. I remember also I would force him to buy me clothes. I was like, at least you're going to buy me clothes. Guilt trip him. Guilt trip him. Um, the second time, it was my mom who got married to her partner who had a diagnosis of terminal cancer. Mm. So that was also really sad because like, yeah. he, he knew he, was, he wasn't going to make it. And it was something that they would do because they loved each other, but also because um, it would make things easier. My mom got married in black. She was oh wearing God. a black pantsuit. And then my dad got married a second time. I was in my 20s. Again, I ordered him to buy me a <laughs> suit, I think, for that time. And I just knew it wasn't going to last. Right. Like, it was just a weird mix, and it got divorced. So right. I have wedding trauma. Well, it's something I could never envision for myself. Like, I can You nev- getting married? Yeah, I yeah. cannot <laughs> picture that right. ever happening. But I'm always curious about what makes people really believe strongly enough that it's going to work to actually do it. Well, my, because then everyone, because again, like when you do look at the statistics, when you watch Marriage Story, yeah, what does it take to convince yourself that it's right. worth going through this? Do that think, kind of amazes me. Do you think it has to do, I mean, both of us sound so cynical I know. right now. And maybe we are to a certain extent. But do you think it has to do with being raised by single parents? Yeah, like I guess being raised by a single mom instilled in me the idea that independence is sort of the greatest achievement. Mm. And I think that reached such an extreme for me that I'm not able to let anyone in 
even though I've been sort of dating more, I still cannot imagine opening up my life to someone and include them in my decision making. I cannot imagine that. It's interesting because you talked about how, you know, you were brought up to believe that. But I think other people may, might be brought up to believe that marriage. You need someone. Yeah, that you need someone yes. and that it's better to go through life with, with exactly. someone else. And sometimes I'm a little bit bothered by how much space, you know, that thinking takes in society like it's I always bothered me that's why I'm, I, <laughs> I'm still upset about the way sex in the city ended right <laughs> you know because it ended with all of them being partnered off and it went against everything the show set off to be at the beginning and I feel like there are so few messages of independence and embracing mm -hmm. it like I always feel like I need to justify why I see myself being single forever I'm not saying that I'm deciding to be alone yeah. forever But if that's what ends up happening, why does that have to be a negative? But I feel you're such a, an icon of, of self-partnership. Yes. You remember that viral story yeah. of Emma Watson Emma coming Watson. out? She just said she was self-partnered exactly. in an interview. I, which I guess she's making a distinction between being single and being self-partnered. And I think what she was trying to get at is that in singleness, there's sort of an implication that you're looking, you're trying to find something. Mm -hmm. But the idea of being self-partnered is that, no, you're whole. I actually believe, I mean, it's going to sound really, really petty, but I think there's actually like a monogamous privilege. I think we live in a society where we sort of elevate and we give certain advantages to people who conform to the idea of the couple. Oh my God, of course. It's one of the things I'm the most against. For me, big surprise, it's really about a financial oh, scenario. Right. <laughs> so like, I think that, you know, as we're living in this moment where basic life expenses are becoming increasingly more expensive and out of reach for mm -hmm. people, to me, couple privilege is like when I see a lot of my friends who live with their partner and they're splitting their rent in half, they're splitting their bills in half. That's couple privilege. You sound to me. so envious. Well, I, I'm envious of like being able to save 50% off my rent every month. Married couples get tax incentives. People get money for the government for having kids. I'm like, where is my bonus for not adding to the global population? <laughs> My name is Bob the Drag Queen. My drag is funny. It's irreverent. What you see is what you get. Bob the Drag Queen, congratulations. You are the winner of this week's challenge. <laughs> Bob just won again. Bob the Drag Queen is the winner of season eight of RuPaul's Drag Race. And by being crowned America's next drag superstar, Bob won way more than just the $100,000 cash prize. Everyone who wins that show really ends up becoming a phenomenon. Can you believe there are people who've never watched a show? Yeah, I haven't really watched <laughs> much. How would you describe RuPaul's Drag Race to someone who's never watched it? I mean, so much of RuPaul's inspiration from the show came from Tyra Banks as America's Next Top Model. Right. So it's the same formula. We start off with 10 or 12 drag queens. They go through different competitions. I know Snatch Game is the most popular, but my favorite is the girl group challenge. So there are two teams of queens, and the, the challenge is to make themselves into a girl band. It's very eclectic. Acting challenges, singing challenges, sewing. Sewing, making the outfits. Like... Sometimes I tend to look down at drag as just being like, it's just throwing a look together. But like, it is drawing on so many skills. It's incredible. 
Four years after his season, Bob is really taking over. He has a new comedy special that's called Bob the Drag Queen Live at Caroline's. Um, he has a new show on HBO called We're Here, and a crossover between Queer Eye and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, putting on drag shows. I'm really intrigued. I can. Oh, hi, Bob. Hi. I'm Thomas. So we got Bob set up at the CBC studio in New York. Are you ill? No, I just have a really shitty voice. <laughs> <laughs> and we wanted to take him back to the beginning, June 2015, when he first learned he was going to be on RuPaul's Drag Race. The day I got the call was the day marriage equality was passed. And I remember it was crazy because I was like down at the Stonewall celebrating. And I got this call that was like, hey, you're on RuPaul's Drag Race. And I was like, wait, what? Like I used to set these goals for myself. You know, I told myself if I wasn't one of the most popular drag queens in New York City, by the end of this certain year I had, I think it was 2014, I said, I'm going to scale back my drag and go back to school. And then I became one of the most popular drag queens in the city. And I said, if I'm not one of the most popular drag queens in the world, by the end of next year, I'm going to have to scale back my drag and go to school. And then I got on Drag Race. Oh, my God. You're so hard on yourself. It in wasn't the sense quit of drag. Like... It, was just, it was just scale back and go back to school to find something else because I didn't, you know, nightlife is hard to do sustainably. Back when I was doing it, I mean, you could make a couple hundred bucks a night. But now even girls who aren't on Drag Race are like, having these huge careers that didn't seem like an option to me back at the time. Week after week of watching the show, was there stuff coming to light for you that changed your perception either of yourself or of your place in the drag world? My The way I viewed myself physically, I mean, I got made fun of a lot for my looks on my season. Um, and that's just not something we really do in New York City. The New York City scene really celebrates you for what you do really well, but they don't really rag on you for what you can't do. I had never been told that my makeup was, like, so terrible. So then I was like, oh, my God, maybe it, maybe it is terrible. And it wasn't great. I did um, drag makeup once. It wasn't really drag makeup. I was doing lady makeup in college for a makeup course. We had to do opposite gender makeup. This is also before I realized that gender was a spectrum and not, like, this or that kind a binary. of binary. Binary. Thank you so much. Um, and then I saw a drag race, and I thought to myself, I could do that, too. And then I just remember the makeup kit that I ordered in college to do my makeup there, and I ordered the same one. It was a Ben Nye TK7. Trying to do you know um, that makeup? No, I don't. I don't know that one. <laughs> it's it's like stage makeup stuff. Okay. And I remember like, oh, now I order this, and then I would start dragging. Beyond like that you could do it, what did you think it was going to allow you to do that maybe you hadn't allowed yourself to do before that? Well, I thought it was going to allow me to produce my own work. As an actor, I was really relying on being cast in someone's work. And as a drag queen, I was able to create, I mean, I started writing plays. I started doing stand-up. I just started creating my own work as opposed to waiting for it to be done. Also, as a total side note to the editor, I do this a lot, that noise. <laughs> it's and on my own podcast, I edit that out. And if you are can kind we, can enough. Can we actually keep this, yeah. your note? <laughs> and, then, and then we won't have to edit it out. <laughs> and then you just loop my yeah over and over again. Someone's going to do I, it's like it's like I did a lot of coke in my life, but I've never <laughs> even done coke. And I, I, I don't have any of the fun stuff that comes with post-nasal drip. I just have the drip. You know? <laughs> well, one of the things that I really love about your drag, because I have to be honest, sometimes I think, you know, there's obviously this relationship between drag and the art of clowning, um, mm -hmm. which is one that I'm not really drawn to. And I think even in comedy, you know, the comedy that I love is when I see people really sort of bearing their soul and not just sort of hiding behind a character. And I feel like what's so interesting about your drag is that it really feels like 
it's an extension of who you are and sort of revealing yourself to us versus hiding behind a character. And I'm just curious if that was sort of a conscious decision from the get-go or had you experimented with the idea of trying to create an alter ego or character for yourself? Yeah, I don't have like a um, like a Katya where she like creates this Russian transvestite hooker character that she says she does. <laughs> Which, I mean, fears go off, you know what I mean? No, no, or for like, sure. Like, like, it's different. People are gra- yeah. gravitate to different kinds of art. When I first started it, I never, I didn't think of it as a character. I didn't want to be like Tyler Perry. I just wanted to wear really jazzy clothes and tell my jokes. One great thing about watching Drag Race is learning the vocabulary and all the categories. Look queen, pageant queen, beauty queen, fashion queen. Um, Bob, your category is obviously comedy queen. But did you ever ask yourself if you wanted to be categorized in the first place? Well... I am a stand-up comedian, and I've always wanted to kind of do that. And, and I also get thrown into like this political side as well, but that's because stand-up and drag are so political in and of themselves. Especially if you're a, if you're a comedian who does social commentary as opposed to like just a bunch of dick jokes. Which, by the way, I love a good dick joke. <laughs> I'm into that as well, but I'm also into the political. Um, so I never really felt the need to like defy myself from labels because. Like, in terms of my gender, I mean, like, I identify as non-binary today because I just started thinking more and more about it. And I realized, like, wow, for me, in my experience, gender really is a social construct. It's, it is a it's – a, it's an idea more so than an actual tangible thing. And in that moment, I realized that I have um, – feminine wiles and I have masculinity and I have things that fall fairly in the middle. So that is why I, you know, chose to identify as non-binary. But when people call me a man, it doesn't really bother me. Um, I always say you are what you are and you are how you're perceived, you know? How do you feel about the way that you know, people have come out against RuPaul and claiming that she's transphobic. I mean, for me, RuPaul has always been someone that's been such an inspiration to me and just someone that seems to really be on a very clear spiritual path. But people feel very excluded by her and her vision of drag. And I'm wondering what your take on that is. I do not know what their policies are. If if their policy is that trans people can't openly compete, I wish they would be allowed to. And I also feel like RuPaul is um, probably one of the biggest inspirations in my life. Sometimes when people are celebrities or when they are revered as icons, we don't allow them to have mistakes. We don't allow them to have faults. And we don't allow them to have a human experience. Think of your favorite one-hit wonder. Or that overpriced toy your parents would never let you have. Or that TV show that no one else remembers because it was canceled way too soon. Now, what if we could fix it? I'm Francesca Ramsey. And I'm DeLon Grant. And after 20 years of friendship, we are now hosting a new nostalgia podcast called Let Me Fix It. Each episode, we'll dig into our favorite celebrities, shows, and brands of yesteryear, and then imagine what it would take to repackage them for relevance today. Think of our show as an intervention, but with way less stakes. So subscribe to Let Me Fix It wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Parse fires, parse fires. Walk to the room, parse fires. Purse fires, purse fires. Walk into the room, purse fires. It is a known fact that a woman do carry your evening bag at dinner time. You invented a catchphrase on the show, purse first. Purse first, um, Mary. <laughs> where did that come from? 
So it actually came from we were backstage and untucked, and we were like, oh, my God, we all just did our first RuPaul's Drag Race runway. What did you all do? And we all were describing our runways. And then I was like, well, I came out like this, you know, with my purse first. <laughs> and then we all started, like, chanting, like, purse first. Oh, yeah, girl, purse first, purse first, purse first. From that moment, it just became this chant with this purse that I had made on the show. So it was literally just me saying, I walked out like this, you know, with my purse first. And then I was like, wow, that rhymes. Let's do a song. But one of the things that made me laugh the most at your season, which I just recently binged, is that during one of the challenges, you won this, like, giant collection of bedazzled <laughs> purses. Yes. Did you yeah, actually I, get I, the purse? Did they give you the purses? Mary, when they gave me these purses, <laughs> they came, Okay, I lived in, at the time, I lived in a very small New York City apartment. I think I won $3,000 worth of purses. <laughs> I was expecting like three really nice purses. Instead, I got seven massive boxes. And I boxes? mean moving boxes full of purses that ended up equaling $3,000. I was giving them out at my show. Like I would do purse first. And then during the musical break, I would just walk out with like seven purses. and I would just throw them in the audience. Oh, my God. That's amazing. You did get the $100,000 check, right? Yeah, I got it on my birthday. And I went to the bank and I was like, I'm about to fuck them up. They're going to be gagged. And I walked to the bank and I was like, oh, they're going to be like, what is this girl doing with this $100,000 check? And then I slid it into the, under the little bulletproof thing. <laughs> And the lady just looks up at me and goes, hey, Bob. <laughs> so, and I was like, hey. America's next drag superstar is Bob the Drag Queen. The thing with drag culture being so big is a lot of people are using the catchphrases and the language and the henny and the... Personally, it's always made me quite uncomfortable because I feel that language is so specific and was created by, you know, marginalized brown and black people and... Like, I have a, a girlfriend who uses Yas Queen with her girlfriends because of Broad City. She has no idea where that comes from. I mean, it's probably happening to you all the time. Yeah, I mean, like, for example, if a little white girl comes to me and yells purse first, I'm not going to be like, you don't even know that <laughs> right. I went through it. I'm a black, non-binary, queer person. Um I, I guess it depends on who you ask. I'm not personally bothered by people saying certain catchphrases. Um, there's some stuff that I, I wouldn't dabble in, but that's also more with, like, epithets and people who prefer to use uh, words that some people might consider offensive to describe themselves. For example, if I, I have friends who just like to call themselves faggots, um, but I wouldn't engage in that activity if I were not a faggot. You know what I mean? And it's one of those things where someone's like, are people allowed to say this? Are people allowed to say that? And I say, well, you're allowed to say whatever you want to say. But you also have to be prepared to deal with the repercussions of saying what you said. So obviously you're allowed to say that. But if you say it and then your social media comes under fire and then you lose your job, you have to just deal with that because people are also allowed to respond that way. Is that part of what led you to creating Nubia, which is your new tour featuring only black queens like Peppermint and Shea Coulee and The Vixen? Because in a teaser for the show, you said black queens, no matter how popular you are or how well you did in the show, sometimes you don't receive the same love or the same adulation that white queens get. I mean, it was really interesting. I was the first black drag queen who wasn't RuPaul to reach a million Instagram followers. Now there's a, a few of us. So have I experienced like issues with racism? Of I certainly have, but I don't know that they have affected my career 
but also that means that I'm the exception. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean that I'm the standard. That doesn't mean that that's that's like when someone goes, "See, Barack Obama was president. Black folks are doing great." You're like, no, 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 no. He's the exception. You know what I mean? Because you've seen racism hold your other sisters back in this industry. Oh, one hundred percent. Yeah, I see girls go on and, and do every bit as well as a white queen. But I'm also realizing this. I think about it from the perspective of the fans. They are choosing what they relate to. So. If a lot of white people are watching it, they probably relate more to white people than they do to black people. So for whatever reason, in that moment, they choose to stand Trixie and Katia more than they choose to stand Kennedy Davenport. Whether or not she can sing really well and can dance and do front flips and back flips. But the young fans don't vibe with her experience because she's in her 40s. She's black but you see Katya, who like considers herself a weirdo, and she's blonde, and she's really skinny, and she's white, and they're like, oh my goodness, that's me, or what I want to be. Did you feel like you gained any kind of insight into who you are by watching the show? Well, I gained uh, 40 pounds after, <laughs> after being on Drag Race, that's for sure. After the season or during taping? After the season. During the season, I lost a little bit of weight, but afterwards, okay. Mary, she got... Because I used to do like uh, eight shows a week and there was like a lot of sweating and I would also still go to the gym too. But then after that I started like flying on planes, sitting down, going on stage for like two numbers, eating at airports, eating fast food and then I just slowly started gaining weight. Going through everything you've been through becoming a, a drag race superstar, do you feel that support has kind of made it possible for you to do it in a healthy well, way? I think I got it from a lot of different places. In terms of my talent, you know, my mom always believed in me, and she always just thought I was so talented and so funny and just, like, the best one at everything. Um, and in terms of, like, being comfortable with, like, my body, you know, I would like to say that it all came from within, but I don't know if that would be true. I mean, I have I have two boyfriends, but I didn't even have a single boyfriend until I was, like, 31, and I'll be 34 this year. Um, but I went a long time without dating because I was so career and goal-oriented that I kind of just didn't know how to date. And then I met my partner, Jacob, who I would say pursued me (laughs) heavily. And I was like, oh, wow, Jacob's like pursuing me. Like, I've never been pursued. He's cute. We see him on the special. He's really adorable. He's really, really a cute little nugget. So the deal was that you were poly from the beginning or you opened up? I told him from the beginning, even though I had never dated anyone, I was just like, I just feel this is how I am. So I'm poly. So I have another partner named Ezra, who lives in Los Angeles. That's fun. That's my goal. I'm Polly as well. To date Ezra? And your goal is to date Ezra? <laughs> no, I'm Polly as well. So to, just to have a West Coast uh, partner. Bitch, watch my comedy special. Tell these other funny hoes to get on my level. Tune in and get ready to ha ha ha. Get an ab workout while I'm You taped your special at Caroline's in New York City, which is one of the most iconic comedy clubs in the world. As a queer person in this kind of space, have you always felt welcome? Or why, why did you choose that space specifically? I have not always felt welcome at Caroline's. Here's a little tea. Years ago, on the day of the Gay Pride Parade, they booked Tracy Morgan at Caroline's. And it was right after Tracy Morgan said that he would stab his son to death if he was gay. And I was so furious they booked Tracy Morgan, booked someone gay, or just booked someone who doesn't want to stab their son to death on the day of the parade. I was so furious. I actually, like, left the parade in full drag, went to Caroline's, bought a ticket, and I sat in the audience. And I watched Tracy Morgan go up on stage. And, like, five minutes when it set, I walked up to the stage with this poster of a kid who had been stabbed to death because he was gay. 
and I handed Tracy Morgan the poster, and I was thrown out of the building. This was like when, in my like wild activist days, and I actually I never told anyone this part. I had a plan to like hit it with a glitter cannon. I had this like confetti oh cannon. I had taken out all the confetti, and I filled it with glitter, and I was gonna shoot him in the face with it. <laughs> but his security guard was right behind me, and he was really big, and I got mm. too scared to do it. And it's one of those things that, like, would I do that today? Probably not. I was just one of those really angry activists who was really indignant all the time. I don't. I wouldn't take it back, uh, but I probably wouldn't do it today. And but sh- there's also something, a kind of humor in it as well, like the idea of like the glitter cannon, and like that's hilarious. But it's like oh. it's like conveying something really important, but through comedy and sort of throwing comedy back in his face. Yeah, I thought it was really funny, and I. Part of me wishes I had hit him with a confetti cannon full of glitter. Part of me really wishes that you had to. But, I mean, I probably would have gotten beaten up. I mean, his yeah, security no, guard was really big. And then he basically walked me out to the lobby where there was no one, and I could just see myself getting beat up by a massive security guard. Mind you, I was in full drag. That's the gag of it. Well, in the special, you say that you're really happy to be a queer person today and that you feel that now straight people are kind of afraid of us. Yeah, uh, straight people are afraid to make fun of queers because... Um, because they might would, show up with a glitter cannon and <laughs> yeah. shoot you. I don't know if you remember the Lara Spencer thing. Lara Spencer was the lady who made fun of Prince Williams or Prince Harry or whatever his little name is for wanting to take ballet classes. Little George. Prince. Yes. Yeah, Little George, that's his name. Made fun of him for wanting to take ballet classes. And then the queer community was so right. that 100 male ballet dancers showed up outside of Good Morning America Studios and they danced until she came downstairs and apologized. That's why I say, you know, if you say anything <laughs> slightly wrong about us, 100 male ballet dancers show up at your job at Potter Bouray until you come outside and apologize. I love the bit also in your special where you say that, thank God, the police raided Stonewall as the bar, because imagine if it had been a different name to the bar, we would have been... <laughs> What's the bit again? I said, um, it was 50 years since the Stonewall riots, and I was like, you know, if this would happen two blocks over, it would have been called the Manhole Reckoning. <laughs> um, because there is a bar, there used to be a bar not far from Stonewall called the Manhole. I love that. <laughs> or the Back Door. It's a place in Indianapolis called the Back Door. And I'm like, ooh, thank goodness. <laughs> One of my favorite parts on Drag Race is when contestants stand on the runway and they're asked what they would tell their younger self. So based on that idea, I wanted to know what would like today's Bob tell 10 years ago's Bob? Um, well, 10 years ago, her name was Kitten with a Whip. Her name was not Bob. <laughs> um, I mean, I would probably tell myself that like my opinions on gender and drag and the queer diaspora, the whole experience, is going to change. Like, I was still from Columbus, Georgia. I had a thick Southern accent, and I only knew what I had been taught up to that point. You know what I mean? Yeah. Even on Gay Pride, I was terrified to leave the house in drag. I think I was afraid of having what I perceived as a trans experience because I had seen people not treated nicely for trying to be a woman in public. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I was so afraid of that experience uh, that I it almost scared me out of, le- out of leaving the house. Hmm. 
But then you had no choice. You had to do it. Yeah. I couldn't live... Uh, I couldn't operate out of fear. You know what I mean? Do you remember that moment when you did finally first step out of your house and drag? Yeah, vividly. I, I was wearing these... Um, they were supposed to be thigh high, but because I'm so tall, they were like slightly above the knee, uh, <laughs> like hooker boots. I was wearing a skirt that I had pulled up to my armpits, and I put in these boobs, and I put a belt beneath the skirt so it looked like a dress. And I went to Ricky's, and I bought a wig with bangs, kind of like I'm um, almost imagine a Coco Peru wig, but not as nice. <laughs> and I was with my friend Val and her girlfriend, and we went to a lesbian party at the pier. And then I remember like coming home and like, my feet hurting so bad, I was literally like on my hands and knees crawling back to my apartment. And I got to my bed and I had taken off my shoes and was like in excruciating pain and thinking like, this was the best night of my life. Bob, it was so amazing to talk to you today. Thank you so, so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. Y'all be safe. Take care. You too. Take care. Bob the Drag Queen. You can catch their comedy special, Bob the Drag Queen, live at Caroline's on iTunes and Out TV. You can also listen to Bob's podcast with Monet Exchange. It's called Sibling Rivalry. And make sure to look out for Bob's new HBO show with Eureka and Shangela. It's called We're Here, and it premieres April 23rd. Obsession. Obsession. What are you obsessed with? What am I obsessed with? I am obsessed with Jessica Simpson's new memoir, Open Book. (laughs) (laughs) It's called Open Book? It's called Open Book. It's very Uh, imaginative. Does Um, it come with a purse or shoes? No, but there is like a a dove motif in the artwork. But there are no pictures. Okay. No pictures. Okay. I haven't made it through the whole book yet. It's like 400 pages. 400 pages on Jessica Simpson's life? Yeah. I think she was inspired by Jane Fonda. (laughs) She's like, you know, I'm going to tackle this book and really re-examine my whole life. But I'm really excited about the book because Jessica Simpson really represents that like peak early 2000s for me, which were like my middle school years. And, you know, at that time, I and I think a lot of people, we looked up to like Jessica Simpson and Christina Aguilera (laughs) and Britney Spears. I've always gone for the underdog. So Jessica was the least successful <laughs> of the three. But let's be time. honest. Like, I think I'm in love with you. Is that the name of the song? Yes. It it's, still holds up. It's so good. With that Tom Cochran sample. It's John Mellencamp. John but Mel- I forgive you. <laughs> <laughs> Jack and Diane. I don't do straight you do, rock. You don't do dad rock. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I want to know also, like, if she talks about Ashley and their fodder who's, you know... So he was her manager for most of her career. And for her whole life, like, he's really been this person that she's wanted to please. But he's also someone that she acknowledges as, like, having done a lot of damage to their family. Sort of living this lie with her mom. He came out as gay, like, many years later. And she sort of presents him as this kind of narcissistic personality, but he's someone whose affection and attention she still wants. So even though he's not her manager anymore, um, one of the parts that I've read is that she put these new songs together just for herself. Like she doesn't have a record deal or anything. 
And so much of the songs are written as sort of a letter to her father, laying out the ways that he hurt her. And she's so nervous to play them for him, but she finally does. Wow. And he is so grateful for the song. So it's kind of like a really beautiful, kind of beautiful. moment. But then I'm also reading this book and I'm like, Jessica's like a super wealthy white woman who's gone really far on very little. Um, but there's something about her that I find has always been sort of charismatic. I've just really enjoying sort of spending time in Jessica land. <laughs> what are you obsessed with this week? Very different. You said you're not into dad rock, but no. there's obviously a side of me that's super into dad rock because <laughs> my dad was into dad rock. Um, <laughs> in January, I saw the show American Utopia. So do you know the, the singer David Byrne from Talking, the Talking Heads. Heads? Yes. Yeah. And I only know that one big Talking Heads song. Burning Down the House. No, the once other in a once lifetime. in a lifetime. Yes. Icon, you know, he's an iconic New Yorker, post-punk legend. You know, he's always been very like cynical of of mainstream entertainment. But in the eighties, he was part of that first MTV wave. And to me, like David Byrne is, you know, sometimes I'm really annoyed at rock stars who lecture us on climate or democracy. Or, oh, you know, I thought you liked that. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, 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 I. There's a limit. There's a limit. Um, but he does it well. Okay. So he. Because he knows what he's talking about. He knows what he's talking about. And he has a deep care for the way we all live together. And But he has a sense of humor about it. So the show is. There's no conventional band setup. They're all all musicians, and they're like almost twenty musicians on stage. They're all carry their instruments, and like they dance around in this and like he's really in amazing the show too. He's in the show, so you know how on Broadway now you have all these shows with music by right. Alanis or Tina Turner, yeah, or but not featuring the actual the ac- artist. Yeah, so he's in the show, and it's a whole reflection on America today, and this being an electoral year, and you know, uh, people can be quite discouraged by the state of affairs in the U.S. Like he, there's just a, a sort of like hope, but he doesn't do it in a way that's patronizing, right? And beyond that. Even though he's straight, there is something queer and different and strange about the talking heads. It kind of made me realize that as a queer person, I don't have to always go for like other queer artists or other women or sometimes right. I find... Well, like, or just the idea of like queerness being separate from sexuality and gender. Exactly. Only you and I could combine Jessica Simpson and David Byrne in the same segment. I love it. And if you want more Jessica and David Byrne insight, make sure to check out our Obsessions column on Daily Extra. That's dailyxtra.com. Chosen Family is produced by me, Thomas LeBlanc. And me, Trana Winter, with Crystal Duhame. Crystal also edits and mixes the show. Big thanks to Matteo Lane. Chosen Family's music is by The Lost Boys. Judy Zigu is our digital producer. Tanya Springer is the senior producer of CBC Podcasts. And Arif Narani is the executive producer. And of course, if you haven't, please make sure to check out our Facebook group. Just search Chosen Family. Chosen Family is a CBC podcast originally developed in association with Phi Studio. Listen to Chosen Family wherever you get your podcasts. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.